You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. So uh, <clears throat> last service, we didn't have an online service. We lost everything else. And so we're gonna do things a little bit different today. I'm gonna ask that you uh, pull out a Bible. If you like a Bible app, that's fine. If not, if you, there's one in front of you, uh, I grabbed this one backstage. It'll look like the one that's either in front of you or possibly underneath you, depending on where you're sitting in the room. And um, theoretically, our numbers are gonna line up. Now, if we bought different versions of this Bible along the way, then I may make a page reference. So you're like, I don't know where blah, blah, blah book is. I'm gonna say it's on page da-da-da. If it's wrong, it's because somewhere along the way we updated the copy, and the copy you have is in a different number system. But it'll still be close. It's gonna be pretty close to what we're doing. We literally have zero technology, and I think it's kind of hilarious that here we are talking about Satan's in the midst of our suffering, and we've lost all technology. None of this will be online today, so we're gonna talk this week about, hey, how do we take this content? Because I think this is something that God wants to use in people's lives. I'm hearing that from people. So as we jump in today, uh, we're missing a lot of our bells and whistles, but you know what we're not missing? The Holy Spirit. And uh, yeah, and I'm so thankful right now that I came in and people are running around like chickens with their heads cut off, which is a really gross analogy. I don't know why I just used it. And... Um, but they're running around trying to fix stuff. And uh, I'm so thankful. Can we just stop and say thank you to our tech crew who works really hard every Sunday? When they're stressed, I'm not, because I don't have to worry about it. They're stressed, so we're good. All right, one place I just want you to go ahead and mark. We're not gonna get there yet, but it's gonna be the book of Job. And uh, the book of Job looks like Job. In, in the Bible that I have, it's on page 391. 390, 391. So if you wanna open there, if you're using it digitally or some other form, I don't care, that's fine. So anyway, what I wanna do is uh, we're picking up where we left off last week. So part of what I wanna do is bring you up to speed and then build on where we left off last week. And this series is gonna be like that. Each week, we're gonna talk a little bit more about this idea of pain and suffering. Has there ever been a season in your life, though, where you experienced suffering that didn't make sense to you and you wondered where God was? That's the heart of this series, that question. Have you ever had a season in your life where you experienced suffering and you just didn't know where God was or what God was doing? Uh, Today we have a couple of our mission partners and our outreach partners that we're celebrating and highlighting. And one of them is New Hope and I'm wearing their sweater today and they'll be out there. And New Hope is in Peru. I went to New Hope a few years ago on my sabbatical. Basically the way this came up is my sabbatical was a little bit kind of thrown together. The elders forced me to go on a sabbatical. I said, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. I was wrong and they were right and I'm so glad for elders who love me enough to tell me what I need to hear and when I don't wanna hear it. And uh, I happened to have like, uh, $1,500 on an airfare that I had to use or was gonna lose from just this crazy story. And so I'm sitting around one day, I'm like, well, I'm on sabbatical at that time. It's gonna expire in like a week. I'm gonna go somewhere cool. Even if I have to go fly there and turn around and come back, I'm not letting them get my 1,500 bucks. And so uh, my idea was I'm gonna go to Australia and do a walkabout. My wife was afraid I was gonna get killed by a snake or a spider, and she probably was right. I'm not like overly survival skill handy. And so I ended up on my phone with a friend who was a missionary in Peru. And he said, why don't you just come down here and stay with us? I was like, that's cool. So I went to Peru. And that's how we developed this relationship. And this home is, uh, like many, many children's homes, they serve children who don't have a family unit anymore. And God is changing the entire system in Peru right now. He's doing something new uh, through the foster adopt system. But the kids in the home have been brutalized in different ways. I don't wanna stand up here and tell you their stories, partly because I don't wanna take a little kid's suffering and use it as an illustration. I can only say that some parents have prostituted out their young children 
for alcohol or drug money. Other families have been murdered by drug dealers and the kids are left behind. And there's any number of brutal stories, abandonment stories, addiction stories, and it goes on and on and on. And I, when I went down there, they asked me if I would do a devotion one night for the kids. As I joked last week, my Spanish is about as good as Dora, because that's where I learned most of it. And um, that's about as good as it gets. And I was pacing, they have this upper room, and I'm pacing back and forth, just anxious. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And it's all about the idea of suffering. I'm going to be talking to four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13 year old kids who've had a brutally difficult life in a foreign country, and I don't speak their language. Well, the, the founder's son was just happened to be there the same time I was, and they gave him to me as a translator. Poor guy was as nervous as I was because he hadn't translated in quite some time. He was just visiting at the same time I was. And um, I got up and I told them this. God is a good father. And not like your father. Not like my father. Not even like my kid's father. He's a good father. He's a perfect father. And you can trust him. And that was the the summary of my entire message. But here's the thing. When you're going through pain and when suffering happens and it doesn't matter how you got there, when you're going through difficult things, the first question we all ask is, God, are you there and do you care? And it's the story of the message of Job. So as you open your Bible to the book of Job, let me summarize for you what we covered last week. The book opens up telling us about Job and what a righteous man he is, which is really important for today's topic. Job is a good man. And it goes out of its way to tell us what a good man Job is. And the reason that's important is because this, what's about to happen to Job is not coming as a discipline or a punishment. Next week, we're gonna look at suffering through the lens of good suffering, bad suffering, discipline, and what God's doing in all of that. But that's not today. Because Job wants you to know emphatically, so if you have your Bible open, you can wander as I'm looking, you know, as I'm preaching, you can look. Job's a good man. That's not his issue. Instead, what we see is there's a heavenly court and the heavenly court is how God rules through the spiritual realm on the earth. There is a spiritual world that God created along with the physical world, and the spiritual world serves the physical world, and it pleases God to work through created beings to get his will done on the earth. This is why we go to our mission partners. This is why we go to our outreach partners locally, because we are partnering with God and bringing about his will and his kingdom. And God does that through the spiritual world. But what we learn early in the Bible is that the spiritual world rebelled. Not all of it, but some of it rebelled against God. And we are caught up in that rebellion. And Job lets us into a behind-the-scenes view of God bringing the spiritual beings into his heavenly court to hold them accountable for the work that they're doing on the earth. And one of those beings, the Hasatan, he's called in Hebrew in Job, literally means the adversary. We've taken the last part, Satan, S-A-T-A-N, and we've made him a being. His name is now Satan. It's not really his name. It's a description in Hebrew of the fact that in the spiritual world, you can't see. You have an enemy who's opposing you all the time. And he comes into the heavenly courts, and he incites God against Job. He basically says, the only reason Job worships you is because you bless him. Remove the blessing, he'll curse you to your face. To which God says, no, he will not. What happens over the next chapter and a half is Satan, the Hasatan, brings unbelievable suffering into Job's life in order to get him to curse God to his face. And to summarize, he loses all of his donkeys, cattle, sheep, and camels, which I know to you may seem like no big deal, but that basically means he lost his entire income. He lost everything. He lost almost all of his servants, so now he's lost all of his employees. 
He's covered from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet with painful sores that he's scraping at with broken pottery. He stinks literally. The Imagine opening up a boil, the smell coming out. He literally stinks and he's a stench to his family and friends because of all the pain and brokenness that he's caused in their life by his suffering. And perhaps, not perhaps, I believe the worst of all is he loses all of his children. A huge, massive wind comes and blows over the building and it collapses and kills his children. And now we find Job at the end of chapter two and the Hasatan is no fool. He's left some people in Job's life to continue his suffering, though there's nothing more to do to his body because God put a boundary in place, you cannot kill him. And the suffering that Job is continuing to go through is his wife looks at him and says, are you still holding on to your integrity? You can see it for yourself right there in verses nine. And his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. And Job replies, you're talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? But make no mistake, first of all, give her grace. She just lost everything they own and her children. But at the same time, she is being leveraged by the enemy to make Job's suffering greater. And it's more than possible when you are suffering that the enemy will bring others into your life to leverage your pain against you. And also, when others are suffering and you're in their life, it is more than possible the enemy is going to bring you into their life to increase their pain. The question is always, are we partnering with God to bring about his kingdom? So three friends, actually four friends, we learn about the fourth later in the book, but we won't get to them today. Three friends show up, and it says, if you look right here in Job chapter two, verse 11, I'll read it from the New Living, since that's what you have in front of you. I have the NIV in my notes. If that's confusing to you, I apologize. Here we go, verse 11. When three of Job's friends heard of the tragedy he had suffered, they got together and traveled from their homes to comfort and console him. Their names were Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. When they saw Job from a distance, they scarcely recognized him. Wailing loudly, they tore their robes, threw dust into the air over their heads to show their grief. When they sat on the ground with him for seven days and nights, no one said a word to Job, for they saw that his suffering was too great for words. A few things, first of all, these friends start off really well. They get something. They get that when a person is, is suffering, they need a friend. When a person is struggling, they need a comforter. And his friends get that, so they sit with him. Not only that, not only do they sit with him, but they empathize with him. They try to enter into his pain. Tearing of the clothing and throwing dust on your head seems like a really weird thing my kids do when they're mad that I tell them no about playing iPad. But this is normal cultural stuff. So when somebody's showing great grief and great sorrow over something, they tear their clothes. Job did this last week. Um, the Pharisees do this when they're mad at Jesus because he keeps claiming to be God. And they get mad and they tear their clothing and see, and it's a sign for them, the great sorrow, this is not good, this is a terrible thing going on. It's a Hebrew way of showing what I'm feeling. And his friends, by God's grace, have come to meet with him in this place to comfort him. Now, this is about where it stops. Because from basically Job chapter four to Job chapter 25, give or take, what happens next is his friends listen to him for a little bit and then they begin to speak. After seven days of silence, they can't hold it in anymore. That's it, I gotta tell you what's going on. But when they speak, they don't speak wisdom. They don't speak hope. 
They don't speak encouragement. All three of them, in their own way and in their own angle, all three of them look at Job and say, surely you did something wrong. Surely this is your fault. Job, you caused this problem. God would never do this if you hadn't sinned against him, and you better repent. In fact, take a look with me. Flip over to Job chapter 16. Look, we're all in this together. (laughs) I just dated myself. Job chapter 16, verse 1. Then Job spoke again, but this time he's not talking to God. He's talking to his buddies. I have heard all this before. What miserable comforters you are. (laughs) Don't you love Job's friends? (laughs) Won't you ever stop blowing hot air? What makes you keep on talking? I could say the same things if you were in my place. I could spout off criticism and shake my head at you. But if it were me, I would encourage you. I would try to take away your grief. Instead, I suffer if I defend myself. And I suffer no less if I refuse to speak. Job is letting his friends know, you're really no help to me. You should have stayed home. That's a really sad state of affairs. Because this guy's suffering is as great as it gets, but realize the friends are being leveraged by the enemy. The friends are not partnering with God to assist Job in his suffering. Instead, the friends are being leveraged by the enemy to increase Job's pain so that he'll do one thing, what? Curse God to his face. The enemy wants Job to quit. And God is allowing all of this to take place. You could even say that God has positioned Job for his wife and his friends to bring blessing and encouragement, but instead, they don't partner with God. They partner with the enemy, and it creates a problem because now Job still needs comforted, but he can't find it. In fact, at the very end of the story, in Job chapter 42, God shows up, and he actually rebukes all the friends. Verse seven, if you wanna look, I'm not gonna go there, but if you just wanna look, Job chapter 42, verse seven, he rebukes the friends. He says, how dare you? You've not spoken on my behalf. You've not told the truth about me. What you have said to Job is not what was going on. I was not punishing Job. But it still brings up a great question, doesn't it? So the God, what are you doing? What is happening here? See, in order to make sense of the story of Job, we have to understand the bigger arc of the story of the word of God. And I'm gonna do my best to make sense of it for you. And uh, since I have no screens, I'm not tied to an outline, I'll try to stay on time, but I'm gonna be a little bit freer than say the outline online if you have the app shows. Nobody's watching this anyway but us, so we can do what we want, right? We're just family sitting around in the family room talking together. But I wanna show you some things that I think are very, very powerful. How did Job's children die? Do you remember? You'll find it in chapter one. From a great, not storm, from a great wind a great wind. I want you to turn with me in your Bible now. Um, If you have one, if not, you just listen to the rest of us. Job chapter 38. This is the New Living Translation that I'm reading, and it says this, verse one. Then the Lord answered Job from the what? The whirlwind. 
In Hebrew, it's actually two different words. The word that was used in chapter one to describe the way his children died and the, the other one. But I am convinced of this. I am convinced what God is doing is God is now going to be for Job what nobody else has been for Job. What I mean by that is this. God is going to show up in the middle of Job's pain and show Job who God really is. Because in the midst of your pain, that's what you need more than anything. You need to know, is there meaning and purpose in what I'm going through? Is somebody outside of what I'm going through ultimately in control, and are they handling it? Are they working all things together? And I need that confidence. I need that anchor for my faith, for my life. Because otherwise, if it's all on me and I'm dealing with whatever it is I'm dealing with, I don't have what it takes. There's not enough in me to figure it out or I wouldn't be in this mess. But God shows up. And what's happened through all these chapters is Job has progressed from in all of this he did not sin to as his friends continue to throw accusations at him, he shifts. He never, ever, ever curses God to his face. He never goes there. But he gets to the diet version of it. He literally gets to the point where he starts to accuse God. It's a slow progression through the book of Job as he starts to transition to where now because his friends are accusing him, he's defending his own honor. But in defending his own honor, he points a finger at God and says, and you owe me an explanation for this. And God shows up in a great whirlwind. And what happens over the next few chapters is profound. It is some of my favorite stuff in the entire Bible, but I gotta tell you, I struggle with it. I struggle hard with it. Just, just take a look for a second. Look at Job chapter uh, 38. Look at verse one or verse two. God says, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words? Brace yourself like a man because I got some questions for you and you must answer them. God is establishing like a parent does to a child the authority relationship. Okay, Job, you've been questioning my character. You've been wagging your finger at me. Now, I'm gonna ask you some questions and I wanna see if you can answer them, okay? So here's my answer for you, Job. Then he goes on. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth, Job? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions, stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? <laughs> By the way, there was no space station for you to see. There ain't nothing out there. And who laid its cornerstone? As the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy, everybody in heaven was praising me. Were you there, Job? Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb, as I clothed it with clouds and I wrapped it in thick darkness? For I locked it behind barred gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no farther will you come. Here, you proud waves, must stop. Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made the daylight to spread to the ends of the earth? And he goes on and on and on. Tell me, Job, can you explain snow? You understand lightning? Job, where are you when the lioness in the middle of the field is hungry, needs to feed her little babies? Do you know how they get fed? They get fed by me, Job. I take care of them. Implication, I know what's going on. You can wag your finger, you can ask questions, you can hurt, and I love you, Job. I've never left you, Job. I'm not disengaged, Job. I'm taking care of the lioness, I'm taking care of the snow, I'm taking care of the lion, and I'm taking care of you. You have no idea what I'm doing, Job. You only see this little piece of the puzzle. But the reason that I struggle with this, just being totally honest, the reason I struggle with it is God sounds sarcastic. 
God sounds like you sound when you're frustrated at the end of the day and your child comes up to you and says, where's dinner, mommy? I'm so hungry. And you go, I'm trying. I'm trying to finish up work and I got this phone call and your dad's running late and they didn't get this and we're out of this and I'm, I'm just working with what I have. That's not what God's doing. That's not what he's doing. He's not looking at Job and going, Job, give me some grace here. I'm doing the best that I can. No, no. He's looking at Job and he's saying, Job, I've got this. And Job, I've got you. And I was there when you suffered. And I've never left you. I've never forsaken you. And I've never abandoned you. And I ain't gonna start now. And God says ain't sometimes. Let me just show you real quick, since we got our Bibles open. Go to Job 41. I am convinced of this, okay? But I realize every time I say this, like I blow someone's mind and they go, is he right? We'll go Google it, because Google knows everything. I find it fascinating. Satan is so present in chapter one and chapter two, but then he disappears for the whole book. But he doesn't disappear. He's leading the wife to accuse. He's leading the friends to accuse. One of his friends actually talks about waking up in the middle of the night with a dream. And the dream, you have to read it for yourself in there in Job. The dream is so profound. He has this like feeling and this like premonition. This thing happens and he reports to Job what he's experienced. All of it is the hand of the enemy trying to accomplish one purpose, destroy Job. But he disappears through the book, presence, in physical presence. You don't see him. He's working behind the scenes. Until we get to Job chapter 41, and all of a sudden, God says this. I want you to see chapter 41, verse one. Job, can you catch the Leviathan with a hook or put a noose around its jaw? Can you tie it with a rope through the nose or pierce its jaw with a spike? Will it beg you for mercy or implore you for pity? Will it agree to work for you to be your slave for life? Can you make it a pet like a bird or give it your little girls to play with? Will merchants try to buy it and sell it in their shops? Will it, will it, its hide be hurt by spears or its head by a harpoon? If you had to lay a hand on it, you will certainly remember the battle that follows. You won't try that again. No, it's useless to try to capture it. The hunter who attempts it will be knocked down. And since no one dares to disturb it, who then can stand up to me? Now, here's the thing. For many, many, many scholars and preachers, they say Leviathan had to have been some kind of sea creature that we don't understand maybe some sort of prehistoric dinosaur. Because he goes on and he describes him. If you keep reading there, because I know you're not listening to me anymore, now you're fascinated. If you keep reading, he's got scales all down his back. He's got smoke that shoots out from his nose and fire that shoots out from his mouth. And I told you this last week. What does that sound like to you? A dragon. If you read your scriptures, in the very beginning of Genesis, Adam and Eve are tripped up by a serpent. Revelation says he's the great dragon, the ancient serpent. The word in Hebrew for seraph or seraphim actually means the flaming snake. Satan, an evil spiritual being, was close to God. And when he stumbled, he now is trying to lead you astray. And the reason that's relevant is I am convinced what God is saying in these verses is Job Let's consider for a minute this enemy you have. Can you subdue him? Can you put a hook in his mouth? Can you make him do whatever you want? You can't, Job, but I can. Me. 
I have the power. Go ahead, mess with him. Mess with him one time. You'll never do it again. But I can. And Job, in your suffering, I'm doing something. I'm subduing your enemy. But if you give in, Job, he wins. If you give in, Job, and you quit on me, and you give up on me, and you leave me because you can't make sense of everything, because you don't understand everything that I understand, because you don't know everything that I know, he'll win. But if you trust me, if you follow me, if you're faithful to me, Job, we win. We win. The same is true for us today. But I want to come back to this whole idea of the whirlwind for a moment. See, the, the word for whirlwind in that passage literally means a violent attack of wind. I'm convinced, and this is the thing you got to get out of the book of Job because it transitions us to where we need to go for the next hour. I'm just kidding, by the way. Um, I'm convinced that God is meeting Job at the point of his greatest pain. Job, I know you're covered in painful boils. I know you lost all your cattle. But Job, I know your heart. And you could care less about any of those things. Like every parent in this room, would you not trade your own suffering as long as your kids didn't have to suffer? The vast majority of us would say yes. Give it to me, God. Please don't let them get it. Car accident, let me be the one to get hurt. Let them be safe. I've lived my life, God. I've done things. Let them have their life. And God shows up in a big storm, a bigger wind. And he says, Job, I need to meet you at the point of your greatest pain so that you know I understand. How do we relate with a God who put the earth in its place, the stars in their place, who controls lightning and snow and rain and earthquake and thunder? How do we, how do we relate to a God who can make cancer go away but doesn't? He's either too big, too smart, too loving, or none of them. What's the problem here, God? Do you not know what to do with the problem? Do you know the power to solve the problem? Or do you just not care? And God says, I know what to do with the problem. The problem is not what you think it is, and I do care, and I am doing it. But that's so Hard to believe for us. So God didn't finish there. Instead, he wrapped himself in flesh. He stepped out of heaven and he walked on the earth. And he suffered. A lot. Jesus says, and you don't have to turn here. I will have you turn to another passage in a minute. But Jesus says in Luke chapter uh, 9, The son of man, that's what he calls himself, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and he must be killed on the third day to be raised to life. But that whole thing, the son of man, he tells the disciples, guys, I gotta suffer and I gotta suffer a lot. Why? Because if he doesn't, we'll never understand God. He'll always be this big otherly that we'll be trying to manipulate and control to get on our side. But that's not how God wants us to relate with him. He wants a real relationship. And a relationship can only come with a person. And so God took on flesh and he became one of us. Turn with me now in your Bible. If you can navigate this, again, in the, the, the Bible I grabbed, this is page 559, Isaiah 52, 559. Listen, for those of you who don't know your Bible, this book that we're looking at, Isaiah, was written somewhere around 700 years to 750 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. This is called a prophecy, literally a predictive prophecy. It's not just generic thing. It's going to describe Jesus. Look at chapter 52. Again, there's so much we can read here. But let's look at chapter 52, verse 13. 
It says this, Isaiah prophesies, see my servant, that's Jesus. He will prosper. He will be highly exalted. Ooh, that sounds good. We like that part. Verse 14, but many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, no one would scarcely know he was a man. So in two verses, the prophet Isaiah let us know that when Jesus came, he'll be exalted. He'll be lifted up. All the nations are going to praise him. They're going to look to him. But before you look for a king that's coming in power and in glory and in might, no, don't look for that. Instead, look for somebody who's so brutalized you barely recognize him. That'll be him. Jesus on the cross suffered unbelievably. The cat of nine tails that the Romans used to whip him would have tore skin and muscle and tendon from his body. The crown of thorns beat onto his head by the Roman soldiers. The cross piercing his hands and his feet as he hung until he died. He was disfigured and dismembered. He was lifted up. Oh, yeah. But when people walked by him, they went, what is that bloody mess? Look at chapter 53 now. Look at verse 1. To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. In other words, you're gonna look at Jesus. He's not gonna look like a king. He's gonna look like a normal person, like a normal dude. He was a tender shoot. He was a human. He took on flesh. He wrapped himself in it. He was breakable. He was punishable. He could suffer. He could go through it all. But then look at verse four. Sorry, verse three. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him. We looked the other way. He was despised and we didn't even care. Yet it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. And all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We left God's path to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. The point of Isaiah 53, again, 700 to 750 years before Jesus, is so that you will know when he comes, he's Job. Do you get it? Job is innocent, but he's suffering terribly. When Jesus comes, he'll be innocent. Now, Job clearly had sinned somewhere in his life, but Jesus didn't but he'll sin terribly. And Job's friends accused him of being evil, just like those who looked at Jesus, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the teachers of the law. They would look at him and say, well, if he's really from God, come down from there. Sound familiar? Oh, if he's really from God, then God would stop this whole thing, but he must not be from God because God's letting him suffer. Job is Jesus. And then perhaps the most profound thing of all, if you kept Job open, go to Job 42. I miss the good old days to just flip it through a Bible, by the way. Look at verse seven of chapter 42. After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. For you have not spoken accurately about me and my servant Job, as my servant Job has. So take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer on your behalf. I will not treat you as you deserve 
For you have not spoken accurately about me and my servant as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and so far the Namathite did as the Lord commanded them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Don't miss this. Job's friends had, a, had an opportunity to do the right thing on behalf of God, but they didn't. They partnered with their enemy, and instead of God crushing them for the way they treated Job, God used Job to be their Messiah. Do you see it? How do you know? What Jesus did for us is he pled on our behalf his own blood. When they brought him the sevens, by the way, the perfect number for forgiveness, when they brought it to him and Job sacrificed on their behalf and prayed for them, God was setting up Job to point us to Jesus so that in Job's suffering, not only would God subdue the enemy, but in Job's suffering, he would point us to Jesus, the ultimate subduer of our enemy, the only hope that we have. This is why, turn with me, if you know where the book of Hebrews is. Again, I'll give you the passage here. I gotta get it. Hebrews is at the end of the Bible, page 921, if you have the same Version I have. If you don't, I am so sorry. All right. Chapter two, Hebrews chapter two, in case you're doing this digitally. Verse 14. The writer of Hebrews says this. I'll wait for you. I hear pages flipping. I get so excited. I'm sorry. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. All right. Hebrews chapter two, verse 14. Because God's children are human beings made of flesh and blood, the Son, Jesus, also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. So the first thing we learn is every human being has one common fear, death. Why? Because I don't know what happens afterwards. But Jesus came so that we had an answer. So that no matter how you die, whether it's a car accident or a tragedy or a murder or a cancer or you just fall asleep one night and don't wake up, the fear of what happens next for you, for your family, for your friends, for your neighbors is found in Jesus Christ. It's solved. It's resolved. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you who have faith in Jesus Christ will too one day raise from the dead. You don't need to worry. You don't need to be anxious. You don't need to be concerned. Did I do enough? Am I enough? Was I enough? He did it all. This is exactly, since I don't have a camera on me, this is exactly what we're celebrating in the waters of baptism. And the reason that we go down into the waters, we come back up out of the waters, is we're practicing a death, a burial, and a resurrection. We are announcing to the world and to our spiritual enemy, I have marked my life with Jesus Christ. And since he was raised from the dead, I too will be one day. Yes. Take the cameras off more often. Verse 16. (laughs) We also know that the Son did not come to help angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. That's us. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and his sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, he's able to help us when we are being tested. Jesus reveals to us the goodness of God. 
When you're not sure if you could trust God because of what you're going through, look at Jesus. Jesus determined that no matter what he suffered at the hands of evil men and women, he could still trust God. His half-brother, James, who wrote the book of James, I find this fascinating. I've said it many times, so forgive me if you've been here for a while. He writes in his book, if you need wisdom, ask God for it. He'll give it to you without finding fault. It took me till two years ago for that passage to dawn on me this way. That means God is not like your dad or like my kid's dad. Because God is not sitting there waiting to say, well, you screwed this thing up. Let's see how you get out of it. This is the half-brother of Jesus. He's going, no, 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 I'm telling you, I've seen this in Jesus. I've seen this in my brother. He's different. God's not like we thought he was. He's not like Job's friends thought he was. He's not some cosmic genie who punishes you like Santa Claus when you do bad and blesses you when you do good. He's good all the time so that even if you screw things up, he can't wait to get you out of it because he's good. And you can trust him. One last passage, and I'm a little over, and we'll close. Romans chapter 8, page 862. 863, technically, is where I'll be. Paul is wrestling with this idea. Because Paul has been working through the book and saying, you know, all of us have sinned and all of us have fallen short of God's glory, but God has been good to us. But the people that Paul's writing to are suffering. They're struggling. And many of them are thinking about abandoning their faith because here's the thing. The enemy knows the greatest way to get you to quit on God is to take away a blessing. Make you wonder if God cares or if he loves you. And there's this cosmic battle that is going on between your life all the time and your faith all the time and God all the time as the enemy wants to twist and distort your view of God. This is why Paul writes then. Look at verse 31. There's so much we could read here, but to close today, 31. What shall we say then about such wonderful things of these as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give up everything else? In other words, don't miss this. You were so valuable to God. And he gave up his only son because he loves you so much. Wouldn't he give up everything else? Is there anything in all of creation he wouldn't trade for you? But not to make you rich. Not to make you healthy to make you his own. And that's huge to understand the difference. That's why Paul says, verse 33, who dares accuse us whom God has chosen for his own? No one. For God himself has given us right standing with himself. In other words, like Job, don't let other people accuse you. Are you perfect? No. Are you forgiven? By God's grace, yes. So don't let anybody else tell you that you aren't saved or you aren't in him. If you are in Christ, you are in the Father. Who then will condemn us? Verse 34, no one. For Christ Jesus died for us, was raised to life for us, and he is sitting in the place of honor at God's right hand, and he is pleading for us. He's interceding for you like Job did for his friends. In heaven, right now. That one's with me. That one's with me. God, go with them, give them strength, help them. Just like he prayed for Peter. Peter, after you failed, I pray you return. Come to me. I've got to keep moving. Verse 35, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? 
Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. And what, what Paul's saying is, just because life sometimes hurts, does that mean that God is no longer for us? No way. In fact, Christian, let me blow your mind. This may make some of you never want to come back to Kingsway again. If you are going to put your faith in God, you better be ready to suffer. It's gonna happen. You are not going to be spared the diseases of this world. You are not gonna necessarily be spared the evil that happens in this world. Drunk drivers will come down the road and hit your car with their car. And God's answer is not that these things won't happen, but I will be with you. And I keep reading. Oh, so good. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. We're winners even when it looks like we lose. And then he says in verse 38, I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons. Neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Yeah. Why is that powerful? Look, if you're visiting with us today and you don't have a relationship with God, the reason you don't know that's powerful is because God's answer for your pain was still to send you himself. His answer was one day I will wipe every tear. One day I'll erase it all. One day there'll be no more sickness and no more dying and no more crying and no more suffering. One day. That day is not yet, but the day begins today. Today. Because even in the midst of your crying, in the midst of your tears, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your suffering, I will comfort you. And this is why I say to people all the time, when you're going through some stuff, look for what God is doing because God is for you. And if you just open your eyes, you're gonna see little things all over the place and you're gonna start to go, oh my goodness, God is surrounding me with his goodness right here, right now, in this moment. I need only to rest in him. But listen, if you're outside of the faith, if you don't trust God yet, he's still gonna be good to you because that's who he is, but I'm just telling you, you're gonna miss it and you're gonna wag your finger at him and he's gonna say to you, like you said to Job, you have no idea what I'm up to, but I am subduing your enemy on your behalf if you'll let me. And maybe today you need to let him. The rest of us are gonna take communion. We're gonna celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We're gonna bring our offerings and put them in these black boxes. If you have never given your life to Jesus, if you've never been united with him in baptism, while we are doing this, I want you to find somebody wearing a Connect shirt and go to them and say, help me meet Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, None of this made it onto the internet today. <laughs> and I'm really thankful. It allowed us to strip away the hoopla. It allowed us to strip away the lights and the screens and all the stuff that we depend on in our lives. And just for a moment, open up your Bible and just dig into what you say and what it means. And here's the thing, God. I know there's somebody in this room and they're going through it right now. And it just seems to be coming in wave after wave after wave. And they just are about to drown. God, my prayer right now is through the power of your Holy Spirit who intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. Would you stir in them? Would you bring them hope through the presence of Jesus? You're real and you're here right now. God, reveal yourself. Reveal yourself. That we would trust you more in Jesus' name.